You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We're trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. This is going to be a particularly delightful interview. The guest today is Dr. Donnie Bryant, the co-host of The Cosmic We. And it occurred to uh, Donnie and I that when we started this podcast, my circle of friends and readers of my publications knew me, and Dr. Bryant's congregational friends and business colleagues and family knew him. But we had not taken the time to introduce one another in depth to our audience. So today we're going to write that wrong and we're going to get a glimpse of the life and times of Dr. Donnie Bryant. <laughs> let me just tell you a little bit and then I'll let him fill in the gaps. Dr. Bryant is the founder and pastor of One Community Church. And let me tell you this, it's a very Thurmanesque church plant in Detroit. And by that, I mean, it is growing in the tradition of the mystic scholar and educator Howard Thurman's groundbreaking church, the Church for the Fellowship of All People in San Francisco, California. When Thurman co-founded Fellowship Church, the intent was to worship across the boundaries of race, religion, denomination, sect, and tradition. Dr. Bryan has a similar congregation. His teaching and preaching style is contemplative, but also dynamic. But there's more. Donnie's not just a pastor. With a doctor of ministry from Luther Seminary, he holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from Michigan State University, and an MBA from the Broad School of Management. Donnie is the proud father of Kennedy, Isaiah, and Peyton. But there's more. Donnie's a founder and president of the Alden Group, Inc., and that's a company formed in um, 2007 to provide healthy cooking oils to the world. The company has grown to be a major supplier domestically and internationally of organic and non-GMO refined food grade cooking oils, oils like sunflower, canola, corn, soybean, and avocado. And I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that later. I met Pastor Donnie, when I was the president of a seminary in Minnesota, he was on the ministerial staff of a church that I was attending in Minneapolis. His well-researched preaching and powerful oratory made my husband and I instant fans. Today, I hope we get to learn more about Pastor Donnie, how he finds spiritual sustenance, what he sees for the renewal of contemplative movements all over the nation. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that during our usual interviews, we ask questions to open up areas of interest to our listeners. But today, it's going to be more of a conversation between us, a time of sharing and deep listening. 
Welcome, Donnie, to the other side of the table. <laughs> Is there anything thank that I left out or that you'd like the no. audience to know about you? No, no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I think what they should know is that uh, our relationship has so many different dynamics and um, you have been a very present friend, partner, mentor, and inspirer, you know, throughout the years of our, our relationship. And so I am so grateful to just work, be able to work with you as a, as a colleague on the Cosmic Week. So I'm excited to be the guest this time. <laughs> <laughs> we have fun together. You yeah, know, we do. Um, we do. Donnie, we do. Um, pastoring is not what it used to be in the old days. Very, very true. Uh, you've been in one church or another for many years as I have. I mean, what are the differences that you see now in the way that church works for people? Yeah, you know, I remember in seminary, one of uh, uh, my professors, he made an observation that I thought was very keen. He said, um, years ago, maybe 50 years ago, people attended church um, out of obligation. He said to the class, when you guys begin pastoring, you will be pastoring in a season and a time where it will, people will attend out of discretion or based on their decision or their choice. And I, I, I found that to be very true, um, that uh, many out of the traditions that I came out of, church was something that we did multiple times a week. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you, let, you, you let some people testify they were at church almost every day, it would feel. Right. <laughs> uh, but one of the primary things that I share with my colleagues is that you cannot expect that. You cannot even expect every Sunday attendance to be the norm. People will feel committed to your church. They feel like this is their church or their, the church they are members of. Um, but the frequency of attendance has dropped to maybe once a month or maybe every other week. And, and, I, and I share with my colleagues that you have to accept that that is the norm today. Um, great mm. commitment is not every Sunday. Great commitment may be every other week. Um, and so just from an attendance and from a community standpoint, so we've had to reimagine what it means to be a member or, or to be part of the community. That's one of the primary differences. What, I think why too, do you think that is? Why do you, know, you think um, um Commitment. Yeah, you know, for, uh, you know, I th some of it's generational. I, you know, I think, um, you know, when I look within our context, we have, you know, there's this language that the researchers use, churched and unchurched, and I, I'm not a big fan of that language, but people who tend to come from an upbringing of attending church, um, there's an understanding of the value and the importance of maybe being a part of a community and attending regularly, and, you know, motivations may change, but there's a general understanding. But today, at least within our community, we have many people who do not come from a background of regular attendance. They, right. That's just not the norm. So if you, if you come from a background of not attending every Sunday and now you're attending once or every other week, that is great commitment to you, right, as an individual. <laughs> so I, 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 I accept that. You know, I agree with that. And so I appreciate, I value, I encourage that in Obviously, um, as people mature and they see value in attending every week, then that's obviously great for the fellowship. To me, uh, you know, my, my only value, uh, my, for me, I love to see people there, but I, I tend to say that there has to be something that you get out of it, right? There has to be a motivation. It should not just be 
you know, the liturgy, it shouldn't just be the sermon, it shouldn't just be the worship, but I want people to understand that there is a, a value in your presence, like that there is a, what I, in my language, an incarnation of the divine. You, people need you there. It's not just what you bring, uh, what you get from the service, but it's also what you bring. And so your absence, you know, is missed. And, um, and so there's a beauty and kind of the connectedness, the union, the, the gathering, uh, and there's something genius that comes out of that. And I believe there's a beauty in that. And so it's not just the liturgy, it's not just the sermon, it's not just the worship. It may not just be, you know, um, you know, the practices, the spiritual disciplines that we do, but I just think it's the, it's the family, it's the community, it's the communion that we bring from that. That's, that's beautiful. Did you intend to have a multicultural church or did it just happen? No. Yeah, that's a great question. No, not at all. I think what's interesting, I, 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 I received my D-men at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. And, I, and as you know, you were you actually provided some great advice when I was working on my thesis. I remember you and I meeting in St. Paul down the street from the, from the seminary yeah. uh, for, for lunch and uh, great conversation. And while I was in class, and my class was a very ecumenical class, I happened to be the only um, you know, person who came from my tradition, but also who was African-American. And um, I really, that experience was great because I began to see and imagine what, what heaven could be like, but also what a faith community could be like. I wasn't really that knowledgeable of, of Dr. Howard Thurman's community. I didn't really understand the motivation behind that at that time. And, uh, but I was inspired. I was the only uh, student that was not actively pastoring. I was running my company at the time. Um, as you know, I made the decision because I was considering your university <laughs> and <laughs> Luther Seminary as the two to receive my doctorate. And I chose Luther at the time and... Um, as I was going, I started really thinking like, wow, what would it look like to have a, a, a multi or interfaith or intergenerational um, or, you know, intercultural community? What would that look like? Um, and I didn't know how to make that happen. The next question was, well, how do you make that happen? Well, I don't know. When we started One Community, there was no intention to build it to have a church. Uh, my inspiration was just to share this message of love and message of hope and to help people live out a, a life that may be, you know, more consistent with, you know, their values. Um, however, when we started, I realized that there were a lot of people from different backgrounds coming and it had nothing to do with me. We did not say, well, we're going to have a black church or white church or you know, this church or that church. We just, it was just a community. That's why we called it one community. Um, and I did not have a certain preaching style. I, I just taught and um, we tried to honor the different cultures. There were so many people from different backgrounds, from different even countries that were coming in. Um, but I realized that the gospel, if presented in a certain way, is universal. That this message mm. is universal, um, that it wasn't, um, there wasn't, you did not have to have a denominational spin to it. It did not have to have a cultural spin to it, um, or an ethnic spin. And, uh, I was very uh, amazed to see the rest receptivity. And so it was unintentional. 
It was not on purpose, um, <laughs> but I'm grateful to have been a part of it. Well, I have to ask you how it's working. And the reason I'm asking you that <clears throat> is it, to be honest, uh, Thurman's church was before mm -hmm. its time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a great and optimistic yeah. idea long before we were holding yeah. hands and swaying and saying we shall overcome, you know, across yeah. racial barriers. But it never took off. It never was the seed he wanted it to be to mm -hmm. plant this kind of multicultural yeah. worshiping community across the nation. It didn't take off. It did not. It is still yeah. a tiny right. little church yeah. with a tiny little congregation. A very, a very meaningful congregation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. doing amazing work, but it it wasn't the seed that fostered yeah. a movement. Yeah, yeah. And so then the question becomes: It's mighty brave to try it again. Well, I got to tell you, <laughs> I, this is this, uh, you're tapping into something that's really it's a, it's it's very important to me because how we define success is, is what you're really tapping into. And I think a lot of times when, when we, when, when we speak of churches, we tend to define success based upon numbers and growth and attendance and things like that, which I think it's fair from one perspective. But, um, I, 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 there, there's a, there's a, there is a, Historic in history, there's a, John the Baptist is is documented as saying that uh, when Jesus came on the scene, I must decrease so that you know he may increase. And I started reimagining what that really could mean, you know. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I started saying, well, what if John? What if that looks, what, you know, from a church perspective, what if that looks like we do our job so well that people become the true church, the true, you know body of Christ in a sense where, you know, the reign and rule of God is truly through them and they're outing their jobs and outing culture. They're out in their communities and in in the in the requirement to actually gather every Sunday becomes less and less and less important because because people are actually getting it now, right? They're out there living out this life of love and there's no codependency anymore in a sense that and so I started really realizing, well maybe maybe they they did they're doing a great job, right? Maybe maybe what he started out for the objective is actually, you know, taking place. And so, I, I don't look at numbers. I don't look at attendance no, no longer as a measurement of success. Uh, I look at the, you know quality over quantity in a sense. Um, you know, emotional spiritual healthiness, right? Are you still on this journey of healing? Do you seek to bring people together? Do you seek to be a participant in in restoration, healing, renewal, um, connectivity, or or are you the type of person? Or are you the type of church? Or are you the type of community or institution that's all about you know as as we talk about you know is it dualism? Is it us versus them? Is it good versus bad? Is it you know are you all about separation and division and creating gaps, or are you about bringing bridging the gap or restoring the brokenness? And so for me, that's kind of the essence of what I feel. I define success about. And, and um, so when I look at, you know, Dr. Howard Thurman's work that was started many years ago, I see it as a success story. And um, so I don't look at numbers. You can have 20 mm -hmm. people and those 20 people could be truly reflecting love and, and, um, and, and, and making a difference in the world and bridging the gaps and bringing people together. And, um, 
and they and they get it right and 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 it's not about this denomination on this belief this religion versus that it is seeing the universal connectedness in all people right seeing the right. divine image in all people um and you live from that place right you don't see what separates us but you see what's common in us and i feel that that is really the essence of what life should be right and to really interpret uh, we were talking about interpretation or hermeneutic the other day, uh, to interpret sacred text from that perspective and not from the perspective of morality or, um, you know, um, um, you know who is good and who is bad and who is going to make it into heaven and who's going to make it. You know, I, I think th- that is all flawed to some degree. And mm-hmm. um, I think there is a way of interpreting this that makes sense, more sense for the greater good and for all people. I love that. And also, um, I see, I think Howard Thurman would be very happy with what what the church became came and what mm-hmm. the church now yeah. is. But looking at yeah. it from the viewpoint of mega churches and those churches, you know, big spire mm-hmm. churches, it looks as if it didn't replicate itself. Sure. And so then yeah. one begins to wonder, can we really worship together across yeah. cultures and traditions? You just mentioned something about the church working itself out of a job. And there's a model for that. <laughs> yeah, with the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. Mm, and they did okay. all of this amazing outreach work, but they would always, it ended up being given to the community. So the church mm. didn't hold on to it and get bigger and bigger yeah, and more powerful yeah. and richer. It yeah. eventually pulled itself out of it, gave it to the people, and moved yep. on to do the next work. So it was like, creating obsolescence for itself in the name of the Savior who said the way up is down. You know, exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. I I may have to research that a little bit more. I I love that. I've I've tried to be intentional um, to protect myself of uh, from falling into some of the traps. So for one one of the ways I've done this, Dr. B, is that I've chosen not to take a salary. So in the last five wow. or six years, I don't take a salary. And, and the reason why I don't do that, um, well, number one, I, I have a, 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 a secondary source, another source, to, a primary source to be able to take care of myself and my family. But I didn't want it to be a barrier, um, a barrier for f- people who have been hurt by their church experience in other institutions. I didn't also want, didn't want it to be a financial burden right? When you're starting something that is small. And I know those as an entrepreneur, I mean, many, many years when I started the company, I could not pay myself the salary that I used to make in corporate America, right? So I had to make a sacrifice, right? And so when you're starting a church, oftentimes the pastoral, you know, salary is a primary, you know, budget item (laughs) in the budget. (laughs) And so to eliminate that allows more funds and resources to be available to do you know, to do good in the community and to do missional work, right? To make a difference in the lives of the people who are there and to make a lives in the greater community that you serve. So those were some of the ways that I try to intentionally, you know, drive out some of the mistakes that people fall into and to not have, and, and for me not to make, you know, this something that was manipulating my messages or my motives, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, but I love that. I love that example. And I'm definitely going to try to see if we can, uh, 
learn from their best practices. Are you saying, Pastor Jenny, that you don't have $100 tide lines and $1,000 tide <laughs> you know, lines? I'm, I'm really bad at that. Yeah, I'm really bad. <laughs> I don't even personally, I don't even take an offering. So we do have, we do receive, I do not ask personally for offerings. I, there is a, a leader at the church who who does, but it's it's done in a spirit where, um, you know, we make it available for people to partner in the work that they feel important. And so, but it's not something that we make a requirement. Um, there's not a theology that you're cursed if you don't give. There's not a belief. Actually, I teach the exact opposite. And actually, we've done, <laughs> we teach a teaching on that that's totally contrary to some of the examples that you just mentioned. But, uh Yeah. But now you didn't see that growing up. You didn't see what no. you're doing growing no. up. No. The church no. that we were in was borderline yeah. evangelical yeah. leaning toward, yes. you know, Correct. moving toward a more Correct. progressive way. But it but uh so what was your journey like? How you were a little more evangelical when you started. Sure. Absolutely. And no you have moved along the way so that now yeah. your theology has change. Could you just briefly tell us about the, the path to where you are now? You know, I, it's, it's really interesting. I've tried to evaluate this, you know, to say, you know, how did this happen? How did you get to where you are today? This is very, you're very different. <laughs> I, I would say um, what I observed in many communities, um, in some communities that particularly where I came from, how can I say this without being too judgmental or harsh? But in 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 one way or one shape or form, you know, I I came up in an environment that was very performance based. Um, when I say yes. performance based, it was um, your righteousness um, or your acceptance before God was a function of your self righteousness, your performance. And so, when you come up in an environment like that, right? It, it, the idea is, you know, to, to do good and to be good, to be this holy person. And I'm not saying that's wrong. And there's some good in that that you can extrapolate. But it's easily manipulated. And so what I started seeing was a way of teaching the gospel in a way. And money was used also as kind of the way to, in a sense, earn your, you know, position. So I started seeing things like that, and I started seeing people hurt. I started seeing uh, people being abused, and in a sense, that's where my I have a justice bent. I think something in me kind of rose up, like this is not right. I was very fortunate that I had success outside of the church. I didn't need position. I didn't need title. So it didn't matter if you know um, I didn't get elevated or didn't get you know. Ordained. None of that stuff mattered to me because I was, I was, I had a, a great upbringing. I had a great family, and I was fortunate enough to have a pretty good career at that time. So I started seeing a lot of manipulation of people, a lot of manip manipulation of power, manipulation of resources, and I was concerned about that. And I made a choice to, to not participate. And I said, if there is any way that I can make a difference, I wanted to do it through inspiring others to be liberated also in their thinking. And uh, and so I just use teaching as my tool. That became my way of mm. inspiring people. I'm not an I'm not an activist, but I use my teaching as my my way of opening up and unlocking people's you know insight. I think you're touching on something very important 
because you're talking about power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And, and this will be probably the last thing I want to I want to talk to you about about multicultural leadership mm-hmm. of a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I have been reading um, Eric H. Law. He's an Episcopal okay. priest known for his work in the area of multicultural leadership. And what he says is that the difficulty of holding a diverse congregation together is that there are so many sliding scales to power. Yes. And the people do not understand how that power shifts as they change context. So let me give you an mm. example. A white woman may assert that she's oppressed by men, and many may agree with her. But she may not understand that her perception of oppression in that situation doesn't apply mm-hmm. when she's with a group of BIPOC people. Because mm-hmm. the BIPOC people don't see her as oppressed. Yeah. And so what Eric says is, a leader in multicultural communities must learn to do power analysis on a given situation. <laughs> and then based on that, they have to determine their leadership style, their theological mm. emphasis, and their spirituality. He's, he's right on. Um, I can truly identify with that. Um, and I don't mean to explain this. We have so many people who have PhDs in our church. We have many people who have PhDs. And uh, I have individuals who are white men who have PhDs. Um, and, uh, you know, I have, you know, people who come from outside, Nigerian. And and these individuals, um, what I learned, particularly just with the educational piece, and I have people who have no degrees, obviously, you know, no, you know, all over the spectrum. To his point, I realized, depending on, from an educational standpoint, there are some power dynamics. There are people when they're extremely educated. Sometimes there's a certain way of, um, you know, th- you know, handling them. Or uh, I- I'll give you an example. I know someone who's a, a psychologist, and um, but when this person goes to the hospital, they have a lot of struggles with doctors because of their PhD. They feel they have enough, you know, they're at the same level of this, you know, cardiologist who's trying to help them. But there's this power struggle, no. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's an example. So I, I started to be more sensitive, but I realized the reason why these individuals are there because they respect the level of research and the level of commitment that I've applied in my area of expertise. Okay. But right. at the same time, they require a level of respect. And so I've learned how to manage that power dynamic in a certain way. At the same way, there's a person who's, you know, who may have a, a felony, you know, who didn't get an opportunity to go to college. Their education is from the school of hard knocks. And and at the same time, I'm sensitive to that, right? And I do not leverage my quote unquote education dynamic to overpower them or to influence them. I kind of operate where we are in that particular place. So you're right. There is, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, for those who don't, who don't know BIPOC, um, you know, black indigenous people of color, you're right. There, there, there are certain things contextually that I'm conscious of that when I'm teaching and I have individuals who are not, you know, we do not have a black church. I had a guy who came, he was a white male. He was interested in attending and he called me up. He said, I just need to ask you a question. Is this a black church? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, well, you were there Sunday. What do you think? He said, well, no, I don't think it is, but I just needed that. It was, a, I just needed to ask that question. I said, well, no, we, we're, we, everyone's welcome. Everyone is there. And, um, 
But it was just interesting to have these conversations about, and I have to be conscious that there are certain contextual things that I may be, you know, there there may be certain language that I'm familiar with that everyone's not familiar with. So I oftentimes might say it one way, but then I'm going to say it in this way, and I'm going to say it in this way. I may use... Um, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar as a reference, but I may use, you know, African Bombada or I may use Jay-Z as a citation, but but I'm also going to use, you know, other individuals and I'm going to make sure that across the the spectrum, people get the point, right? I may be painting a picture. I'm painting a picture, but I'm using references that everybody in the congregation or everybody in our community can get, not just some people. So... Well, I kind of wish I lived in Detroit now so I could go to your church. <laughs> you mentioned in a YouTube video that contemplative practices ground you and help you to see as you are created to see. How are mm-hmm. we created to see? You know, um, so some of my inspiration in, in, in this thought practice does come from some of your colleagues um, um, you know, Father Father Richard Rohr, um, yourself, um, you know, even even um, you know, Dr. McLaren, Brian McLaren. Um, there there is a there is a perspective that I have that when I say created to see, I believe there's an original goodness, and I'm I'm gonna use language that may be familiar to some and, and not familiar to others, but there's a there's original goodness in creation. So if you believe in the creation narrative that when there's an original way, an, an intended way that all creation, not just human creation, but, uh, you know, material and uh, the ecological creation was intended to be. And there's this Hebrew word called teshuva, which literally means to return back to your original state. It's a foundational principle in Judaism. Um, literally, the word repent is a derivative of the word teshuva. You know, it literally means to return, but not a return just in return, but it's a return back to that original state of goodness in creation. And so depending on how you view the world, but we all can agree that there's something that's not right. There's there's brokenness. Whatever language you want to apply to it, there is division. There is something that is not the way we know. And we're all yearning to try to recover that. That's why we we strive to be happy. We strive to be satisfied. We strive for success, right? We're all striving for something better. But oftentimes throughout life, we realize that the things that we are using to cope with this void or this brokenness or this lack or whatever we want to call it, it's not sustainable, <laughs> right? Mm, I mean, the right, Reese cups that right. I use, you know, to eat when I'm feeling down, I realize that's not a sustainable model. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, uh, oh my God, I was at a, my kids, my kids used to see me, I would, I would, when I would come home sometime and, and pick them up from practice and they'll, they'll look in the car and they'll see, they'll look over me and they'll see in the side pocket of my driver's side door, they would see all these open, empty Reese cup packages. And they would just look at me like, you're having a bad day, dad. <laughs> you're stress eating again. You know, I'm like, leave, leave my, leave my Reese cups alone. But, um, <laughs> that was how I was. And I realized there is a better way. And so, you know, what, 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 as we become more emotionally and spiritually healthy, as we're on this journey of life, um, and there's no blueprint other than union becoming one, again, with the creator and one with each other. 
So to me, the, 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 the way of seeing is when you get to the point where you see that oneness with each other, oneness with the divine, and oneness with the ecological, the world around us. And so this cosmic perspective of oneness, that we're all connected in some way, I, I believe that that is the ultimate arc um, of all religion in a sense, right? And even the word religion in the Latin means to rejoin or reconnect. You know, it literally right. means to relargate, to reconnect. And and so if it's reconnecting that which has been disconnected, I think th- the more we see that, that is the reign and rule of God. I really believe that's the essence of the gospel. That is the reign, that is the kingdom of heaven on earth, in then, my opinion. You know, if that's the case, yeah, and, and if that's the case, then that means you don't have to believe in um, the any particular religion right. to come right. together in that on that cosmic arc. People struggle with that. Wow. They, they they struggle with that statement, right? With that you just stated, and and I I do agree that it, that's not the point. That was never the objective, right? That was never the objective, and uh, to 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 make you believe a certain way. And um, there are these pathways to reconnecting, and I and I honor them all. One of your mottos at the church is: "It's a place discipleship comes alive." <laughs> what does discipleship look like today? Yeah, you know, growing up, discipleship was about, um, you know, dressing a certain way. <laughs> How, right. You know, you know, what you could and could not do, right? Behavior modification, right? That that was discipleship right. when I, you know, in one respect, to me, real, true, ultimate discipleship is, 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 is about, you know, spiritual and emotional transformation. It is that becoming whole, you know. Um, and, and to me, the coming alive is really that journey. It's that journey of recognition. It is that journey, and it's, and it's recognizing that I'm doing this not alone, but I'm doing this with people. I'm not on a journey by myself, but I'm journeying with people. And, and there's an activeness in it. Um, I was just sharing with a, a friend just a minute ago before we started, and and we were we made this con- we were made, and I was referring to Jesus when he said, "I came in John chapter ten verse ten. I came that you might have life, and life more abundantly." And what I was sharing with him, I said, "This idea of abundant life is 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 it, it, it's not really about you know you being happy all the time, you being you know getting what you want all the time." I say, I think the embodiment of life more abundantly is when you can get to a point in your life when you can self-empty, where there is a surrendering, mm. right? There's a complete surrendering. And oftentimes that comes through the process of grief, the process of pain, the process of loss, the process of divorce, the process of losing, right? The process of getting lied on and being rejected. And it's through all of that where you get to a point where you say, you know what? I surrender. I give up. I, I, I stopped trying to be right. It's not about winning. It's not about getting my way. Um, but it's, you get to a point where you, there's a Greek word, is kenosis, the kenotic. It is a self-emptying. And so I, 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 to me, that is where real life is experienced.
Is There Life After Doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. shift a little bit just to talk a bit about your company you make organic non-gmo oils and i just want to see how does the health focus in your business align with your spiritual path yeah you know they they actually it, it does you know in a very interesting way i actually um i i personally feel what we do um, in our profession, what we do for a living, what our gifts are and how we share those gifts is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Um, however, your, you, whatever your unique shine is, your unique contribution to humanity, it's an act of worship. It's because when you operate in that, um, you are literally mirroring uh, the image of the divine. You're reflecting that goodness into the world, and so um, what I what I do as an entrepreneur, um, I do it from that same perspective, that same heart. So, um, you know how I treat my team, and um, how uh, the level of integrity I, I engage in with doing business, and um, you know, but even the product, you know. So when we started, kind of interesting, when I started the company in 2007. I was leaving corporate America. I was working in a medical device company in Minnesota at the time, and um, it was going through a transition. And I came up this this idea came one of my colleagues from he's he's Turkish, and um, he, he we were having a conversation about importing from Turkey. And I was like, man, I'm gonna start this company. What can I bring in from Turkey to sell in the U.S.? And he said, what about olive oil? And at the time, I'd say olive oil, you know, that's not good. It's too competitive. And you know what? Most people love Italian olive oil or Spanish olive oil. Ain't nobody going to buy Turkish olive oil. <laughs> He's like, well, Donnie, you're a good I marketer. Do. <laughs> really, really, yeah, it's some good. It's actually some really good olive oil. Yeah, I know. I know. Really I do. And he said, you're a good marketer. Figure it out. So what was interesting, Dr. B, at the time, 
I did some research and my experience in medical device, uh, I was was a pacemaker and implantable defibrillator um, sales rep and also marketer. So I did a lot of research and marketing about how to, you know, grow to market. And one of the ways that I think in my research, I really realized within the African-American community, there was a lot of disparities when it came to cardiovascular um, care, access to care and access to therapy. Um, And there was huge gaps, huge disparities that it was was astronomical. Um, I remember at the time I was a member of the Association of Black Cardiologists and um, and as as an industry member. And so some of the things, the research that I was seeing was astonishing to me. So when I started a company, I was, there was this trend happening back in 2007 called the Mediterranean diet. And uh, so olive oil is a staple in the Mediterranean diet. And so what I was trying to figure out was, well, how do I get possibly African-Americans to consume more olive oil? And I don't know if you remember at the time, there was a young, well, there was a woman by the name of B. Smith, Barbara Smith. Oh, yes. Yes. Remember B? And B passed a couple of years ago. And uh, but B had restaurants in Manhattan. She had restaurants in uh, Union Station in D.C. A restaurant in Long Island in, in Sag Harbor. Uh, she was a lifestyle television personality uh, in the '80s and '90s. And I actually reached out to B and her husband and said, "Listen, I would love to form a license agreement with you. Put your name and face on olive oil, and to sell it into stores, and ultimately." targeting a particular demographic, trying to increase the consumption of healthy oils, in this case, olive oil. And that was my first product that we commercialized. And I think at the time, at the height of it, we were probably in four or 5,000 stores. We were in Walmart, um, Sam's Club, Myers in the Midwest, Albertsons, um, Hy-Vee in the Iowa area. We had a pretty good, pretty broad distribution. And um, we were really proud of that at the time. And so that's how we got started. And that's kind of how my, my, my motivation to make the world a better place to, you know, you know kind of started with this, with this concept. You said you noticed disparities that were shocking to you. What <laughs> were the disparities you're talking about? Yeah. So obviously I mentioned access to care Number one, and access to therapy. So access to care, and some of this is, you know, we're going back 20 years now, so you got to, I've been out the business. But one of the things I saw, number one, um, when it comes to access to therapy, meaning at that time we were looking at implantable defibrillators and and, 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 and so, and, 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 and pacemakers, some of the issues were, you know, health care, you know, the disparities in who has health care and who doesn't have health care, um, you know, or insurance. Um, and some of it was the issues within the physician community because primary care physicians sometimes made decisions on who got certain types of care and who got mm-hmm. certain types of therapy based upon their interpretation of their patients or based upon their misinterpretation or based upon their biases, right? And so we saw that. And so um, and so when you start looking at the numbers, you're just like, well, why is this particular subgroup here not getting referred for particular? Why are you referring them for this type of therapy and not that type of therapy? Right. And so obviously, you know, um, there's a lot more nuances there. And so that was one of the things we saw. And so what I said was, is there something we can do on the preventive health side? Is there something we can do before you have a heart attack or before you have high blood pressure? And that's where the olive oil concept came into play. That's wonderful. What is your most troubling 
post-pandemic concern. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Uh, I do have a concern that the world is becoming a more divided place. A more divided place. Um, at one point in my early journey, I felt like things were getting better and people were, there was a level of, you know, um, diversity that's taking place. But it seems like we're now heading in the opposite direction where the value of differences is no longer value, where, you know, an appreciation for otherness is no longer appreciated. And so it, it just seems to me that there is a a movement, if you will, that is uh, moving in the opposite direction um, since the pandemic. So those, that's some of my concerns. That's one of my major concerns sure. right now. Okay, then what gives you hope for the future? <laughs> I am a glass half full person. And, um, you know, I, I think there is a, a sense in this younger generation of, of, of appreciation for others. I, I, I think what also gives me hope is that even some of the scholarship, you know, even, you know, the community, you know, the CAC, some of the work the CAC is doing, um, you know, to encourage and inspire and to participate in people's individual, internal, spiritual healing and emotional healing, but also at a collective level, a lot of the work that's being produced and published and being presented, it's actually helping people to to rethink, to reimagine, to reconsider. Yes. And I feel that a lot of that is really starting to, I'm starting to see the influence of that, the impact of that, right? Um in just the distribution of this type of content, you're seeing that, wow, um, you know, good always overcomes evil in, in some shape. And we may not know how it's going to happen, but we can be confident that it will happen eventually. And so Wonderful. You're a dad three times over. If you could teach your children one thing about life and how to survive it, what would that one thing be? One of my primary themes now is this love. And uh, particularly with my children, I'm even revealing a sense of, of, of vulnerability um, within myself, which is an act of love um, with my children, you know, to, to show them that you don't have to be, it's not about being perfect. It's not about making a lot of money. It's not about how much material things you gain. It's not about how many pairs of Jordans you have in your closet. <laughs> and um, as some of these kids think, but it's about living a life that brings healing and wholeness into the world. I, I, I have this really, I have a clear definition of what I believe relationships should be about, particularly with two or more people. And that definition is when two people choose to intentionally participate in one another's healing, that is what authentic living and relationships look like. And so I want my um, children to know that I think the most important thing, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's in a tribe or a family, that it, it, this is not about being right or wrong. It's not about who's the prettiest, who has the longest hair, whose eyes are the bluest. It's really about, can you be aware of the journey that we're on 
Are you conscious enough that I don't have it all together and you don't have it all together? But can we participate? Can we be partners in each other's teshuva, in each other's return back to our original state of goodness? Mm-hmm. And to me, if we can get that, that is, again, and I hate to use religious language, that is the reign and rule of the creator. That is the reign and rule of God. Um, and I think our relationships, this world, our communities, our churches, our our businesses, our nonprofits, they would be better places if we had an awareness that uh, that maybe this is what life is about. One of the ways that ministry really works is when the pastor lives out of an authenticity <laughs> that I'm hearing from you. Um, you know, it's an odd thing. If you, uh, if you are ever studying performance, they'll tell you um, if you're on stage, whatever you think, the audience can see. Mm-hmm. And a lot of pastors forget that if they're living double, triple lives, they're living as if the marketplace is their God. And yet <laughs> on Sunday, they become holier than thou, that mm-hmm. the people can really see that. They may not leave. They may stay in the church. They may continue to tithe. They may... They may honor the person, but they can see mm. you. And it looks like, I don't know where you learned it from, probably your, your parents or the pastors or the mentors you've had, but there is an authenticity where you present yourself in an honest way wherever you are. And so well, when that happens, the Holy Spirit can use yeah. you. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate it. I, you know, uh, where does that come from? I, I don't know, um, but I, I would say, you know, he, your colleague Ross says this a lot. He, he, you know, he says transformation, authentic or true transformation, comes through two sources: two sources, either great love or great suffering. And he yes. says even the pathway of great love is ultimately <laughs> the pathway of great suffering. Oh right? yes, sacrificial, <laughs> sacrificial love. And, 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 you know, I, ha- I was, I, our, our, our guests, our, our listeners don't know this, but I went through a divorce a couple years ago. And Dr. B, you know, because you were, uh, I reached out to you, um, you know, in, in several ways to, 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 you know, as a support and to maybe just be a, you know, wise counsel during that season. And during the process or even prior to it, you know, I, I continued to have to show up to the community. I remember having to preach every Sunday, having to teach while I was, you know, being divorced, being separated, and even post the divorce. Um, and that was truly a painful but transforming process. And I can truly say that, you know, the, the version, Donnie version 2.0 <laughs> Post the divorce is a better version of Donnie prior to the divorce. It caused me to be more honest with myself. Um, I'm probably less judgmental than I than I ever was before. Uh, I am more welcoming, more accepting, more understanding of of all people. Um, and uh, but some people don't change even you know, even through a difficult season like that. Some people maintain. They actually dig deeper, right? They they become more firm in the craziness of their own internal thoughts. <laughs> you know, I love, I love Dr. Thurman, one of his famous quotes. He says, listen to the, 
you know, he, he says, you know, the transcendent that you seek, the the divine, the the God that you're seeking, um, is within you. He said, so listen to the voice that is within, and that voice that you hear, that voice is at the same time your voice and the voice of God. And I got to tell you mm. this, the contemplative practice that you learn from that teaching really does help you through seasons like that, right? And you do become authentic because you realize the the union between you and God. You understand that now that voice, um, and there's a level of uh, it, the fear goes away, right? The fear and the anxiety that controls us. Um, oftentimes you realize there was nothing to fear on the other side of that fear. And um, so you begin to live life in a much more loving and caring way, um, not out of the lower self or the shadow self, as you know we say, um, but the, out of your true self, right? There's a better understanding of who you really are. So many of us don't know how broken we are and the ways in which we we come to understand that and can grow is in community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you've been talking about the ways in which this community almost cosmic in its um, contours mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. provides the safety, mm-hmm. the companionship, the spiritual net that allows us to be safe enough to see, to really see yeah. who we yeah. really are. Because we don't grow from the experiences that give us so much joy. We grow from the breaking times. Yes. And it's then when you need community the most. Yeah, absolutely. And I I realize in that, that is where truly this concept of uh, the reign of God takes place. Because it it is, we become the incarnation of the divine to one another. Right, we we become Christ, if you will, if you will. Right, this is not a Christian thing. This is a human thing. Right, this is regardless of whether your faith belief is, it's happening all over. You don't have to call it Christianity, but in community like this, when you extend love and compassion, and, and you're sacrificing, you know, your agenda for the benefit of the whole, the common good, the greater good, you are literally incarnating. That that is the reign and rule of divine, I believe, in that moment, in that situation. And what happens is that there is a restoration, there's a healing. And you, to use the word we used before, there's a teshuva. And you are participating Mm. in each other's, right, wholeness. You're participating in that return. And, And it's a beautiful thing when you begin to realize that you can be the pastor, like when I was going through the divorce, the church was participating in my teshuva, my healing, right? The love, the kindness, the support. Mm-hmm. And they and they supported both of us, right? I mean, there was love on both sides. They didn't hate on one and hate the other. But that came because this, there was a community they were, they were already part of that did not have an agenda, that taught love, that didn't judge, that was willing to accept, that was all about, hey, let's figure out how do we get through this thing called life together. And hopefully we end up mirroring the image of the creator in such a way that he's glorified. And that's ultimately what it's about. It's wonderful. Well, if you live in the Detroit area, one community church, you know, Pastor Young, you're a very busy man. What gives you (laughs) peace? 
<laughs> How you know, do you unwind? Uh, yeah, I do work a lot. Um, you know, with our company, we 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 supply a lot of the oil to these big brand companies like Unilever, Kellogg, and Frito Lay, and that does take up a lot of my time, and I get a lot of you know satisfaction from being able to do what I do well in that area. But I I like to read. I'm uh, my my spare time. My my son was asking me one day, Dad, what you like to do for fun? We were having dinner one day, just he and I, father son time. He said, Man, what do you, Dad? I never see you do. What do you like to do? For fun? I said, Well, actually, son, I like to read and work out. He said, Read? Don't nobody read for fun. <laughs> He's like, Dad, you are weird. <laughs> you don't go hang out with your friends. I'm like, Uh, well, you know. So actually, I like reading. I like working out. Um, honestly, during the basketball season, this is interesting. Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but man, during basketball season, I am locked and loaded. Um, this is preseason <laughs> right now. I mean, these are my. This is my soap opera. Like I'm, I'm listening. I'm watching who, who the trades are. So I'm a big basketball fan. I uh, enjoy that. Um, I just enjoy being with people, family, and that kind of energizes me. You know, I enjoyed and I enjoy working with you. Uh, I really do. This is uh, this journey has been really rewarding for me. Well, this has been an amazing hour. <laughs> so much fun getting to know a little bit more <laughs> about my friend, Pastor. Dan. Thank you for taking the time. Thank to you. Do this. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for the time. Appreciate you and the work that you're doing. Love you. Thank you, Dr. B. Love you back. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.